Thank you, Richard. It's great to have you back. So good to see you again, man. <laughs> there was a uh, well-known study done a long time ago, but very pertinent to what I'm talking about today at Princeton University. And uh, it was, without the students knowing, a psychological study. Uh, this study uh, involved 40 students, uh, and they were divided into two groups, uh, and they were told that in a few minutes they would need to go to two different buildings, and they would need to give an extemporaneous talk on topics assigned to each of the two groups. So group one uh, was to talk about the careers uh, that a religious education could afford them upon graduation. Group two was assigned to talk about and to explain and expound the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, what they did was that they took each of these two groups and divided them into three groups within their own larger group. So they're totally six groups. So here's what these subgroups then were divided into. One subgroup, this is from each of these two major groups, each subgroup were told that they were a little bit late so they, were, they needed to hurry uh, to that building to talk on their assigned topic. The second group was told uh, that they needed just to proceed quickly uh, to the building they were assigned to give their extemporaneous talk. And the third group was told they had three to five minutes, so upon that end of that time period, they needed to be in those, those two buildings to give their talk. Well, what they did was that this study planted uh, an individual in a common hallway that all 40 students had passed through to go to their two buildings. And this uh, individual uh, was very ill-dressed for the season. It was five degrees outside, and he was not dressed appropriately for five-degree weather. Uh, so they had him sitting in the hallway, coughing, slumped over, ill-dressed for five-degree weather outside, and that's the person they passed through as they walked down this hallway to their two buildings. Of the 40 students who passed by uh, this individual who was ill-dressed, who was slumped over, who was coughing, uh, only 16 of the 40 offered any kind of help at all. Most of the help that they offered was in the next building. They told the people in the building they saw this guy down the hallway, so basically telling those people to go help this guy. They didn't stop to help. Uh, there was just a small handful of people that did stop to try to help this individual, but very, very few. Here's what they found in terms of correlation of what was going on as to who stopped to help this individual. There was a direct correlation uh, between those who were told they needed to hurry and those who offered no help at all. The people in a hurry offered no help. To this individual. They found no correlation uh, between those who were most likely to stop to help the man and their assigned topic. There was no correlation at all. So even the people talk, who were supposed to talk about the Good Samaritan, there was no correlation between what they were assigned to do uh, in their talk and their help of this individual. No correlation whatsoever. And secondly, uh, the likelihood of the needy, the man being helped by uh, th these people, that there was no correlation between that help and the student's spiritual uh, and Christian maturity. No correlation whatsoever. It's a little discouraging, isn't it? 
So although I would often do this at the end of the sermon, I'm doing it at the beginning of the sermon. I want you to think about yourself uh, as I talk about the Good Samaritan this morning as Jesus teaches us in Luke 10. And I would like for you to think about what will have the greatest impact upon you stopping to help the needy people that God puts into your life path on a daily basis or monthly basis or whatever frequency that is. What will have the greatest effect as to how you respond? Will it be your Christian and spiritual maturity and what Jesus teaches us from the parable of the Good Samaritan? Or will it be how busy you are and how full your schedule is or other factors that in your mind prohibit you from helping that individual? What will have the greatest impact in you stopping to help needy people? Think of that as we then proceed to talk about this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're going to look at reviewing the parable story after I read it, uh, and then we will talk about learning from the parable's lessons. So let's hear Luke 10, 25 through 27, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Verse 25, chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and uh, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, here's the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his way, uh, on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come again. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we now take a look at this parable, and Lord, simultaneously take a look at our own hearts and lives, Lord God, would you in your mercy and your goodness and love minister to us. Father, we know in our culture we don't engage people like this very often, but Lord, you do sovereignly place such people in our life path 
from time to time. What does this parable help us to do when we encounter such people? Lord, prepare us with this parable to respond in a way to them that gives glory to your great name and to those we help. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's review the story. Let's talk, first of all, about the half-dead man on the side of the road. Jesus uh, tells us, and he's presumably a Jew, uh, that he is making his journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when Jesus says he's going down to Jericho, that's exactly what he means. This journey was a 17-mile journey, and it was a descent of 3,300 feet. So that's what he was doing. So because this road was, went through a rugged territory uh, and a wilderness terrain, uh, it was well known to have excellent hiding spots for robbers. Uh, and so that was what was the case for this individual. They were there as he passed by, and they preyed upon him and robbed him and beat him and stripped him and left him for dead along the side of the road. That's the half-dead man. Then we have the traveling, quote-unquote, neighbors as they pass by this man. Now, there are three different people that pass by, and they represent two major responses to this half-dead man. So we understand that the first two travelers, the priest and the Levite, represent the first response was, which was to have no compassion, no mercy for this beaten, half-dead man. The third traveler, the Samaritan, represents the contrary response of having a deep compassion and deep concern and giving great care to this dying man. So let's talk a little bit about these uh, three individuals, the priest and the Levite, and then the Samaritan. The Bible often speaks, speaks of priests and Levites, as you probably noticed if, you, if you've read the scripture, and their function in the temple was very much the same. They worked together, actually. The, the priests were the people in the temple that acted as mediators for the people, giving offerings and confessing sin on behalf of the people that came to worship in the temple. The Levites were assistants to the priests, so they would help them in these sacrifices they offered. They also provided menial tasks as music and doorkeepers, and they prepared sacrifices the priests offered. So there were a large number of both parties in Jerusalem that labored in the temple, priests and Levites. But we would understand, if we read more about these two people, the priests and the Levites, that many of them, like in this story, lived in other parts of uh, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem area, in this case Jericho, and they'd go to Jerusalem and work for days and then return to their homes, like in this case to Jericho. So when both of these religious professionals encountered this man who was beaten and stripped and half dead, lying on the side of the road, they got as far away from him as they possibly could. It says that they passed on the other side. As far as they could go in the opposite direction, they went that far and walked by this individual. Those are, what we, those are the things that we encounter with these men as they went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. What about the Samaritan? Who is the Samaritan? Well, a little, little bit of history of the Jewish nation. 
In 722 B.C., uh, the conqueror Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of the Jews called Israel. They conquered them, and they took with them back to Assyria, most of the people they conquered, but many were left behind uh, in Israel that Israel had conquered. And they left many Assyrians as well uh, that stayed in that part of that, uh, that portion of the world. Those parties ended up intermarrying. Jews left behind, not taken by the Assyrians, and Assyrians that were left behind, they intermarried, and they had children, and they had offspring, and because that area in which they were in were called Samaritans, these mixed-race Jews were called Samaritans. They were hated by the Jews. These half-breeds were hated by full-blooded Jews. So much so that the Jews had to pass into Samaria, around Samaria, to the kingdoms north of Samaria, they would never go through Samaria. They would most likely go to the east of the Jordan River, pass on the east side of the Jordan, get above Samaria. When they got above it, they'd go west across the Jordan again, and they would keep going. They would not make themselves unclean by going through Samaria. We see uh, how much that this lawyer in this story despises the Samaritans uh, because when Jesus asked him, who was greater in this story, he never uses the word Samaritan. Did you notice that? You notice what he says? Look down at verse 37. So Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Not the Samaritan, the one. Wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. They hated them. But this Samaritan, this half-breed Samaritan, had great compassion, it says, on this man. This word compassion is used just uh, 12 times uh, in the New Testament. And, and the times that it, it is used, it's either used to describe Christ himself or the stories of people that Christ told in things like parables. It was never used to describe another actual individual except Jesus. So three of those times just used in a parable, like this parable. So in the parable of the unforgiving servant, the prodigal son, and the Samaritan, Jesus uses the word compassion to describe a person in the story. It's a story person. The other nine times just used in reference to Christ himself. I'll just give you one example, Matthew 9, 36. It says, as he looked at the, the, the vast crowds, he was deeply moved with pity for them, or compassion, uh, for they were as bewildered and miserable as a flock of sheep with no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion upon the lost. So this word compassion literally means uh, to have the bowels yearn, is what it means. It means there is a deep, guttural response to what someone is looking at. Their stomach turns. They're moved with this deep-seated yearning to offer the help that they see this person's in need of. So this is what the Samaritan is moved with. He has mercy, he has deep compassion, and he responds. So he treats this person's wounds with oil and wine and bandages. He then puts them into his Honda Civic and he drives down to the nearest Holiday Inn and he puts them up for the night. And then when he leaves the next morning, he gives the innkeeper 
enough money to take care of him while he's gone. And then when he comes back, he tells them, if you encountered any other expenses to take care of this guy, tell me, bill me, I will pay it when I come back. That's what he did. Now, what about the lessons that this parable might have for us? Let's look at three potential lessons. I'm sure there are more we could think of, but these are three critical ones, I do believe. First of all, the first lesson is loving neighbors, true loving neighbors won't use the technicality excuse when they see needy people. So don't forget the introductory event to this whole parable. That this lawyer asked Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers the lawyer by asking him, what does the law say? The lawyer responds in verse 27 and gives the correct answer, loving God from Deuteronomy 10, and loving, or 6 rather, and loving your neighbor from Leviticus 16. Uh, so he gives the right answer, love God, love your neighbor. And then Jesus in verse 28 affirms this correct answer and then challenges the lawyer to be obedient to both those commands, love God and love your neighbor. The lawyer is not convicted about his love for God, although that's an issue if we were to dig deeper. He does respond to loving your neighbor. And his response tells us he knows he's not a very good lover of his neighbor. So he gets technical. He says, okay, great. Who's my neighbor? Right? So what's going on here? Well, this convicted uh, attorney was trying to avoid this compulsion that he felt in his own soul of his own guilt of not loving his neighbor. And so he's trying to engage Jesus in a technical discussion. But notice what Jesus does. Notice what he does. He never answers how he can inherit eternal life. He never talks about how he can inherit eternal life. Secondly, he doesn't get into a debate defining what a neighbor is. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't answer his question. Instead, he lays the groundwork for the gospel showing this man how guilty he was so that he would have a need to respond to the gospel. So he continues to convict by what he tells in the story. And secondly, he turns the conversation from a technicality discussion about who is your neighbor to talking about what's neighborly. Not who is your neighbor, but what is neighborly. In other words, Jesus essentially says, let's not talk about them, neighbors, let's talk about you. That's what he's saying to the lawyer. We're going to talk about you now. So what needy neighbor, it's not what a needy neighbor is shown to, uh, to be shown by his compassion. So it is how neighborly I am by showing compassion to needy people. So it's not talking about what needy people need my compassion. It is how compassionate are you in responding to needy people. Secondly, it's not how sweeping is the phrase my neighbor. It is how sweeping is your neighborliness. And last, it's not whom should I love. It is how are you loving. Jesus turns the table. So loving neighbors is not, should not devolve into discussion about who they are, but how neighborly are you being to those who are in need that you encounter? Are you a good neighbor? Not who is my neighbor. Secondly, loving neighbors won't use the superiority excuse. They won't pull that card when they're being challenged to be neighborly. 
Religion often gets in the way of us uh, showing compassion to hurting people, doesn't it? It can often get in the way. So the unmerciful spiritual giants, the Levite uh, and the priest, they passed by this man. Very religious people in the society of Israel, and they do nothing. They get as far away as they can because they don't want to be made impure by getting close to this guy. They use religion to avoid him, to get away from him. But the merciful scumbag Samaritan stops and meets the dying man's needs. He stops and addresses those needs. So we always have to ask, what gets in the way of my personal purity when I encounter a needy person? We all have them. It may be something intellectual, that they're in an intellectual category that I can't relate to, I'm not going to try. It may be because of my own purity. I don't think that I want to dirty myself with a person like this who actually is dirty. I don't want to get involved with them. It may be that their class, uh, their social status is very much unlike mine. I don't want to stoop down that far and relate to a person like this. I won't do it. It may be racial, that you have racial bigotry and you won't be involved in identifying with that person of another race. You don't know or don't feel comfortable with trying to do so, so you avoid them, you don't help them. Any number of things that get in the way of us being able to excuse ourselves and not meeting their needs. Thirdly, loving neighbors won't use the costly excuse. Helping the person in need we may deem to be too costly, monetarily too costly. The Samaritan paid a great price to help this man, didn't he? Took him to the place of where he needed to be housed, had the person that was uh, in charge of that uh, uh, facility to take care of him and to accrue any expenses that went beyond the money that he was given uh, and promised that he would be paid back when uh, the good Samaritan returned. So there was great cost involved. So he didn't write a check. The good Samaritan didn't write a check to keep him from paying the price of personal involvement. Churches are notorious for this. Churches are notorious for doing this all the time. Let's write a check. Rather than being involved, they do it as a way of saying, my conscience is clean, I wrote the check, done. Let's move on. Rather than maybe doing that and offering the kind of help that's needed to the need that's being displayed, by the individual that they're trying to help, or individuals, or the organization they're trying to fund. And he didn't get personally involved to keep him from paying the price. He did both, didn't he? He paid the price monetarily, and he paid the price in terms of his own involvement. He paid both prices. Listen to this comment by a scholar who wrote about the parables of Jesus' ministry. He said, some will give money to buy themselves off from personal exertion. Others will give their personal exertion to save their money. But in the instance before us, both were given by the Good Samaritan for what genuine neighborly love does, it will do thoroughly. 
If we're going to provide the need that we see before us, we should be thorough in that provision, whatever it costs, by the power and grace of God. Last July, uh, I started a sabbatical, a six-month sabbatical for my presbytery duties. And uh, was common for pastors like us to do that, to, to do a lot of reading. I did some. I wouldn't say I did a lot, but I did benefit a lot from one book I did read. Uh, and it relates to what we're talking about this morning. It was a book by a Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink. Uh, and he uh, has... Uh, wrote, taught, when he uh, taught seminarians, he taught uh, reformed ethics. He's very well known at seminaries that students use today in their seminary education, reformed dogmatics or reformed theology. Reformed ethics is this class about reformed Christian living, uh, what informs the way that we live. So they have uncovered his class notes for reformed ethics and are now beginning to translate them There'll be three books coming out in that translation. There's only one out now, and that's the one that I read. If you know me or talk with me very long, something's going to come out from me about discipleship. I think about discipleship a lot for the church. Why do I think about that? Because what was Jesus' commission to the church in Matthew 28? Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the church is commanded. He commands the disciples that as they leave him, as he leaves them and ascends into heaven, they are to be given to the task and call to make disciples. The thing that I'm often taken by as I help churches uh, in their ministries is how little uh, it is talked about in the church as to what is a disciple. If you can't define a disciple, how do you know you're making them? And if you want to be a disciple, but you don't know what that is, how do you know you are being what God's called you to be and has called for you to walk as his disciple? So I think about that a lot. How do we get down to the very bottom or essence of what a disciple is for my own personal benefit and for the benefit of the church at large? Bavink talks a lot about that issue in this book, Reformed Ethics. So he helped me boil down. I had a three part or three-point description of the disciple. He helped me to boil it down, cutting it by 30% to have just two, just two points that he makes. And it comes from, in part, this parable. It comes from what we see in verses 27 and 28 here in Luke 10, where Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Elsewhere, Jesus says, these are the two great commandments. So if these are the two greatest commandments, are they not to be part of the way we think about what a disciple is, about my own life as a disciple, and about the church as a people who are called to be his disciples? So we need to understand that that, as it says here, if we do that, look at verse uh, 28. It says, do this, and you will, what? You will live. How do you find life? Where does life comes from? Life comes from loving God and loving your neighbor. It comes from that. You will find life if you do that. God has made us and wired us to love God and love our neighbor in that we find life. 
So a disciple, first of all, then, is someone who lives by loving. Loving who? God and your neighbor. So a disciple lives by loving. So we also understand that to do that, something has to happen in our own soul that we make decisions that exemplify, I'm committed to loving God and loving our neighbor. What is that trial? What's the struggle? The struggle is with me. That is to say, I resist loving God and loving my neighbor. I struggle with me when it comes to, I wonder if I should read the Bible or not. Or I wonder if I should pray now or not. Or I wonder if I should take whatever you want to fill in the blank. I struggle with me in doing that. I am my own worst problem. Right? When it comes to loving my neighbor, or make it quite practical, loving my wife and my own household, what stands in the way of me loving my wife? Uh, me. I, there are only two problems in relationships, you and me. So I can't make her love me, but I can make me love her. I can't control her, I can control me by the help of the Holy Spirit. So how does that happen? How do I make that decision to love her and not me? Well, I need to die, right? Jesus talks about that in a few chapters later in Luke's Gospel. Luke 14 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I love, and it's in the bulletin today, that John Cross talks, John Stott, rather, in his book, The Cross of Christ, says, If we are following Jesus with a cross on our shoulder, there's only one place to which we are going, the place of crucifixion. Our cross, then, is not an irritable husband or a cantankerous wife. In other words, it's not somebody outside me. It's not them. It's instead the symbol of death to the self. That's the problem. So how do we ever die to self? Well, God never fails to give us the resources to do what he commands us to do. So by his death and resurrection, he has sent the other spirit, the Holy Spirit, who occupies me as his temple, and that spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is in me. And now I have all resources to say yes to righteousness and no to sin. In the words of Philippians 4, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Let me read the Amplified Version of that very little verse. This is the Amplified Version. It says, I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I am ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. That is, I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. That comes from the Spirit of God of which you are a temple. And so I rely upon him to enable me to say no to self so that I can love God and love my neighbor. And that is where we find life. A disciple lives by loving and a disciple loves by dying. If we are going to practice what this parable teaches us, that's our call as well. We need to learn how to respond by the power of the Holy Spirit to love our neighbor 
How do we do that? You need to die to self to do that. And let me just take it one more step. What does that mean dispositionally? That means that you need to have the disposition of a servant if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself. You need to see yourself as a servant. It's been said that, that I don't mind being called a servant. I just don't want to be treated like one. But we're called to be treated like servants because we are servants. We are servants as Jesus was a servant, right? Jesus says in Mark 10 that the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came with that disposition. I came not to be served, though I am the king of the entire universe. I am the king of all that you see. I am creator of all that you know. I am creator. But I did not come to be served. I came to serve. He came as a servant. How do we live as a servant? I may have read this before. I'm not sure. I've preached here several times. So it's a good reminder if you've heard it before. If not, I pray that it challenges and blesses you as it does me every time I read. I'm going to read excerpts from an article by John Alexander called I Don't Want to be a servant. Jesus and Paul are always telling us that we are to be servants. And to me, that has always rung true. So I've preached it a lot, and I've even tried to practice it occasionally. But that was before I knew what it was to be a servant. The essence of a servant is not existing. If you're a servant, you are able to do all sorts of jobs without anyone having to notice that you exist. But I want to exist. When I've stuffed 3,000 envelopes, I want somebody to say, thank you. And I want somebody to acknowledge my existence. So I'm not always pleased with Jesus. He seems to think it is, that it's perfectly okay uh, not to be thanked. Being a servant is not my idea of self-fulfillment. So the next time someone's looking for a servant... I'm going to be slow to volunteer. It's not that I'm lazy. It's that I think life has to have a sizable place for fulfillment. But I fear the verses about taking up our cross outweigh those about taking good care of ourselves. Probably Jesus' idea was that I didn't need to take care of myself because other Christians are supposed to do that. And that's a great idea. But it doesn't work. If I don't take care of myself, nobody does. Nobody took care of Jesus either. He put others ahead of himself, and look what happened to him. So much for servanthood. But I still don't want to be a servant. I'd hate it if it was my job to not exist, and I'm in no hurry to get crucified. But narcissism is none too attractive either. The need for self-fulfillment may be one of the chief delusions of our age one of our chief principalities and powers. Maybe, maybe we need to find a balance between self-fulfillment and servanthood. But Jesus never did. Let's pray. Father, help us to awaken each day with a heart's desire to be a servant to the needy that come across the paths of our life. Help us, Lord, to learn to remind ourselves that a disciple is someone who 
lives by loving and who loves by dying. And to be aware of the dying that I need to do today with those who I love, the brothers and sisters in the church, and for those in or outside the church that are desperately in need. Help me to be Jesus to them. Help me, Lord, to be a servant. Help me to glory in the privilege of being such. Lord, I pray, would this church be known for its servants? Would it impact Clarksville? Would people be amazed how the people of God at Christ Presbyterian Church serve their neighbor? In Christ's name, amen.